when I started this Sunday school series, my intention was to work us through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which we kind of did, and, and use it just to orient us, right? The, the world that we know that on the one hand we love and are familiar with, and I mean that seriously, and there's a sense in which God expects us to love our lives and to, to, to love our place in history and the kind things that he has done for us. And on the other hand, to note the absolute spiritual, moral disaster that seems to color so much of the world, and certainly our country, all of those are introduced to us in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. That uh, God created man, and he created him in righteousness, and man chose unrighteousness, and no matter what God does... For the most part, no matter what God does, men default to unrighteousness. And the more men you have, the more unrighteousness you have. And uh, it plays upon itself. And so God has dealt with that by judging the world um, with, through the flood and basically starting over again with Noah. And that leads us to the Tower of Babel in which God judges the world in mercy with languages, um, so that again, a reminder what the world is pushing for, which is unity of, among men. Um, <clears throat> right? This, this always elusive, yet always possessing magical qualities if we could achieve it. Ethnic, racial, national, economic, unity, that we would all be so much happier and better off. And yet, folks, the Tower of Babel is God's judgment upon that, that we are not better off. We are better off the way that it is, not with the hatred, but with the diversity. And uh, we are better off being separated into independent nations. And we are better off struggling to interact with each other linguistically. And this would be God's Position there, not that not that he would in any way endorse the hatred that exists, but the Tower of Babel is God's lesson that He mitigated evil in the world by dividing us, and so, and then we are going to be, and this is part of the great failure, by the way, I would argue, of any conversation about unity, whether it be national unity or ethnic unity or racial unity. The great failure is to realize that there is unity only in the gospel. And that only as people are in Christ can they have true unity. And that's introduced to us at Pentecost. It is argued most passionately in Ephesians chapter 2 that Christ has made us one and that uh, <clears throat> this is the ideal. So anyway, all of that to say, right? But what the Bible story does then, right? We have Adam and his wife Eve and their descendants and whatever the population of the world is, to the flood. And God eradicates everybody but Noah, his three sons, and their families. And from that eight, we have the world comes into Babel, and we have God dispersing the nations at Babel. And at that point in time, towards the end of Genesis 11, the Bible turns its attention to one of the most important human beings in all of history, and that's Abraham. So we have kind of this singular Adam and here's what became of Adam, singular Noah, here's what became of Noah, and now we have singular Abraham, 
And here's what becomes of Abraham. If you look at Genesis chapter 11 and verse number 10, these are the generations of Shem. And it is from Shem that we get that group of people that we call Semites or the Semitic people. Um, Most commonly in the world, we think of the Semitic people as the Hebrew people, but the sons of Ishmael, the descendants of Ishmael, are equally Semitic people. And so we have the Semites that come from Shem, from Shem. And I'm not going to read it all, particularly since I'm coming in rather late, but if to time-wise, if you look at verse number 22, Sirig lived 30 years and begat Nahor, and Sirig lived after he begat Nahor 200 years and begat sons and daughters, and Nahor lived 9 and 20 years and begat Terah, and Nahor lived after he begat Terah 119 years and begat sons and daughters, and Terah lived 70 years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And so this, this passage, Genesis eleven ten through 26, takes us from Shem to Terah. And that part of what's going on here is God making sure that we understand the connection. Our connection is clear. Adam, Noah, Terah. And therefore, Abraham is going to be in that connection. And without, again, we could, for, for those, you know, who are more inclined this way, it is similar in structure to the, to the genealogy laid out in Matthew, or in Genesis chapter 5. Uh, there are ten names on the list. The last name on the list has three sons. Um, this has ten on the list, counting Noah. And the last name on the list has three sons. And of course, the great difference is that Genesis 5 emphasizes the death of all of those people. Genesis eleven twenty-seven through 32, then focus upon Terah. And again, you will notice that, right, that I hope, what I hope is becoming familiar to us, marker then Genesis with reference to divisions, verse number 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. This is what became of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity, in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. So just as there is a section that deals expansively with Noah's sons, Genesis 9, 18 through 29, here is a section that expands upon Terah's sons, Genesis eleven twenty-seven through 32. All right, so there's Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And just let me beg your indulgence. I know that at this point in the Bible story, it's Abram and Sarai, Um, But I will almost certainly call them Abraham and Sarah, just by force of habit, and I trust that you'll understand, right? Their names are changed later in the Bible story, and that has meaning, but I will almost certainly default to Abraham and Sarah. So Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. 
And of course, Lot, Lot, of course, Lot will factor in to the story a little bit later and serve in, in, in a very real way as a foil to, to Abraham, all right, from the same family. Uh, and then the story tells us that Haran died before his father Terah died. That's the point. He died before his dad. So his dad outlived him. And this happened in the land of Ur of the Chaldees, which we would understand to be the ancient civilization of Sumer. And uh, you can just find out all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of historical uh, information about Sumer. You can get books. There's all kinds of lectures on Sumer and the, the, those people, if, if you wanted to pursue that. It was one of the world's most advanced civilizations in its time. And uh, this is where Abram was. So, uh, and, then, and then it goes on now, right? Because Haran died, and so Abraham and Nahor lived, and they both got married. Abraham married, we will know later in the story, he married his half-sister Sarah. And they are brother and sister in that sense. And Nahor married Milka. She was the daughter of the man who died, Nahor. And she was her husband's niece. So there's lots of what to us are weird interfamily relationships there. Some people argue this is not the same Nahor, but it just seems certain that it is the Nahor we have introduced. Sarah had no children. Sarah had no children. And in verse number 31, Terah takes Abram, his grandson Lot, his daughter-in-law Sarah, and they leave Ur of the Chaldees. And they head to the land of Canaan. And when they come into the land of Haran, they stay there. And I just, right, right, we're not really spending a lot of time on Bible geography, but Haran is not Canaan. They're they're encamped at Haran. They are on the way to Canaan, but they are not in Canaan. Haran is somewhere in modern-day Turkey. And Ur of the Chaldees is probably located somewhere in modern-day Kuwait. And what they have done, apparently, is follow the path of the Tigris River, which runs northwest, always following the river. These are not not days of modern interstates with cutoffs where you can find a McDonald's. And so they followed the food route and the common path. And while they are in Haran, Terah dies. This is the information that God is giving us, and then the last note is this. And of course, we know, folks, that this is a vital piece of information. Sarah has no children. So Abraham and his wife are married, and they have no children. Chapter 12, then, verses 1 through 9, introduce us, right? So we have, again, this rather broad uh, body of information about these descendants and then narrowed into one man. Verse number 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country from thy kindred from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. 
And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land under the place of Sichem, under the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and there he builded an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. So this is our introduction to Abraham singularly. God had told him to leave Ur of the Chaldees. And in doing so, he made him a promise. And that is the promise that he will make of him a great nation. And that he will bless him. And that he will make his name great. And that he will bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And in him shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So there are four components to that. There's nationhood, there's land, there's blessing, there's reputation. And so Abraham leaves Haran, he is 75 years old, and he takes Lot, his nephew, with him. And he arrives in what is called here in the book of Genesis, on verse number 6, Sikkim. It is almost every other place in the Bible that you find it called Shechem. So, and if you'll look at verse number six, and I just want to mention this to you, and this is the kind of thing that theologians love to fight about, but we're not going to fight about, but I'm going to mention it to you. Some people find in the word place, Abram passed through the land unto the place of Shechem. Some, some argue that it implies a Canaanite shrine or a Canaanite altar, but it's really just a very bland generic word. It means place. Not this place, but that place. And he comes to land. This is land that we know from the book of Judges in chapter 4 and verse number 5. This is land that will belong someday to Ephraim, one of the sons of Joseph. And that is the land that is just north of land that will belong to Benjamin, which is where Jerusalem is located. And then again, the text is giving you really a signal, right? I mean, it's not just, and you know that, it's not just fluff and filler, right? But here's a signal. Here's something that's going to become important later. Sarah doesn't have any children. And this is something that's going to become important later. There are Canaanites living in the land of promise. 
many years ago. Right? Many years ago. I, don't, I, I think it was in upstate New York. It doesn't matter where we were. We were on vacation. Our children were smaller. We, we go to check into our hotel. We check into our hotel. We grab our luggage. We carry all of our luggage up to the room. We unlock the door to the room. We open the room. And there's nobody in the room, but somebody is living in the room. There are clothes hanging and clothes laid on the bed. And we go back downstairs and we go, hey, there's a little bit of a problem here. Somebody's in the room that you gave us. Now, that would have been really awkward if they would have said, well, that's the way we do. We double book the rooms and then the strongest survives. Right? You're both in the room. You both have keys. Fight for the bed. But again, this is a signal, folks. God has given Abraham land that somebody else is living in. The Canaanite was then in the land. That's a signal. Right? These are things that are going to be picked up and developed in the story. We're going to develop, God's going to develop in the story the fact that Sarah doesn't have kids. That's an important thing. And the Canaanites in the land, that's a really big deal. Right? That's going to be a major component of this story going forward for many, many centuries. How many centuries? I don't know. The Bible story's not over yet. They're still fighting over the land, folks. They're still fighting over the land. In this passage, Abraham moves from Shechem to a mountain on the east of Bethel. And he settles in there. He is there for a while. He has as Bethel these, right? These are major biblical markers to us, Bible stories. Bethel will be on his west. And again, here's just another one of those curious notes. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse number... Eight, it's called Hai, and in the book of Joshua, it is called Ai. And you just know it as Ai. So you can get out of Bible Atlas or look in the back of your Bible or go to Google Maps, and there's, you can see where Abraham is. He's right there between Bethel and Ai. And there he builds an altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. There is a formality to this. There is a a response on his part. And as we will see, because we're just going to keep working now at this point, I think a little bit at least, into the life of Abraham, that Abraham's activity is going to be to some extent set within these, within these events of building altars and calling upon the name of the Lord. And so, right, Abraham has received the promise He has moved into the land of promise. The land of promise is inhabited, right? He's he's the recipient, and this is the, by the way, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is the first of several direct mentions of what we know as the Abrahamic covenant. And it's a major storyline in the Bible, the Abrahamic covenant. So here is a man who has no children. I mean, if you can just put yourself in Abraham's position for a moment. He has no children, but he has a promise that he will be a great nation. And as he looks around the land, it's inhabited by other people, and yet he has a promise that the land will be his. So there's Abraham in the land, and he stops and he builds an altar. And then at that, verse number 9, 
he journeys going on still toward the south. And in so doing, he is further and further away from Ur. Right? So, so those are the events. I mean, that's just, that's just the storyline as it unfolds. We're going to take us from Noah down through the, through the family that gives to us Abraham, and then we're going to turn our attention to Abraham, and he, of course, is going to become this singular dominant figure in the entire Bible story and where he goes and what's going on in his life. So we ask then, of course, as always, a couple of questions or the question, so what? Right? It's, it's really, and I don't mean it in a disrespectful sense, folks, but, but there's, there's a sense in which we're always reading the Bible, or we at least should be reading the Bible, right, with these two trajectories or these two ideas in our hand. Idea number one is what? What am I being told? And, and then idea number two is so what? Right? Out, of, out of all the things that I could be being told, why am I being told this and what does it matter? So first, let's just, let me just briefly touch on what this tells us about the Lord. Right? What, does, what, does the, what do these events tell us about the Lord? First of all, they tell us that God is certain in his ways. God always acts deliberately, never acts randomly. We think of things as being random, but they are never random to him. We think of things being accidental, but they are never accidental to him. He just, folks, the God who knows everything and sees everything and can do everything cannot possibly have an existence in which the unanticipated and unexpected happens. It just cannot be. The, the only way it could be like that is if he isn't the way he has explained himself to us. God is certain in his way. Specifically, right? We could walk all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And God has purpose that he will create a man who will populate the world and will bring the reign of God to planet Earth. And God has not, right? He has, he has looked at the wickedness of men and gone, wow, this is way worse than I anticipated. There's a sense in which that's what repented him that he had made man on the earth is implying that, that God is almost stunned at how bad we could be. And so he eradicates everybody but Noah. And then he comes to look again, and here we are, absolutely determined to plot out our existence in defiance of him and ignoring him. And we have Babel. And to that God has Abraham. God is certain and deliberate in his ways. He is acting with purpose always. So on the first hand, as pertain to God, his ways are certain. Secondly, folks, the text tells us that God's ways are mysterious. How do you explain a man like Abraham? Dale Rouse Davis, who is an excellent writer and a tremendous Old Testament 
scholar is, and is, by the way, just should you pick up his book so that you know going in, is Presbyterian. He would look at some things differently than we would. But Dale Ralph Davis makes the excellent points that Abraham cannot be explained historically. There is no, and I'm just going to use our word, there is no Christianity, folks, in the land of Sumer. It doesn't exist. There's no Christianity in the land of Sumer. You You can't come up with a historical explanation for Abraham. But neither can you come up with an intellectual explanation for Abraham. How do you explain Abraham? There is no residual Christianity. There is no Christian influence. Not only that, if you look at Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 1, now the Lord had said unto Abraham, how did that happen? In other words, in what way did God talk to Abraham? Did he appear to him physically? Did he just appear to him in his mind? Did Abraham hear a voice? Was Abraham's first response, am I going crazy? I hear a voice and I don't see a face. Folks, let us understand that this is not simply the story of a man who is relocating Right? Don't, don't misread, the fa- misread the Father Abraham story. Turn, if you would, we'll come back to Genesis, but turn, if you would, to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24 and verse number 2. Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. So this, this was their existence. Verse 3, And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. Now, we wouldn't say probably the other side of the flood. right? We would talk about being on this side of the flood. But the flood becomes the, the division and the marker and these are people who live. We're going all the way back to the flood. They served other gods. And I took Abraham. I took Abraham. And I led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. Now we'll return to this in a moment. But, the, but folks, what do we learn about God from the story, right? God is deliberate. 
He is doing something specific and deliberate, but there is always a mystery to what he does. There is always some component of it that just defies our ability to explain. Thirdly, his purpose is to bless. And if you recall, this is one of the major ideas that is going on in the book of Genesis. Genesis is in many ways the book of cursing and blessing. Blessing far outweighs cursing. But it is the purpose of God to bless. This is what he wants to do. And from this point on, folks, the magnification in the book of Genesis will be upon God's blessing, not God's cursing, but upon God's blessing. So God has brought his curse upon the earth, and yet in blessing he will recover man from the curse through a man. And, of course, Abraham becomes important in the Bible story. So as we talk about the point and purpose of the book, what is the significance of the story? There are important things that it tells us about God. That he always acts deliberately, but he often acts mysteriously, and his purpose is to bless. Which is, by the way, one of the reasons that we have a verse like Romans 8.28. Right? The foundation of Romans 8.28 is laid in a book like Genesis chapter 11 and 12. Secondly, the significance of the story as pertaining to mankind. Right? We can look at it and go, what does this teach me about God? And we can look at the passage and ask, what is the significance of mankind? Well, folks, Abraham becomes the benchmark of human faith. In other words, from this point in the story on, human faith will be measured in terms of Abraham's faith. Let me show you what I mean. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 4. Paul has been talking about the blessing of being declared righteous or being justified. Verse number nine, cometh this blessedness, I'm sorry, cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only? Or is this only for the Jews? Or upon the uncircumcision also, which would technically have included us, Gentiles? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. And then Paul goes on in verse number 10 to answer the question whether it was for the Jew or not, or just the Jews or not. And he points out that it was reckoned to righteousness to Abraham prior to circumcision. And again, folks, I would just remind us always, when we're talking about these kinds of things in the Bible, sequence matters. What came first? So, right, so let's just right, let's just recover something, right? What we know at, by the time we're in Genesis twelve nine, we know two things about Abraham that really impact, right, his life, 
One is that he's been promised a great nation, but he has no children. And number two, he's been promised a land, but it's inhabited by other people. And as we work our way through the book of Genesis, what do we know about Abraham's response to these promises? He believed the Lord. And God counted his belief as righteousness. So that Abraham becomes the benchmark as we see Romans chapter 4, verse number 9, or Romans chapter 4, verse number 12. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. So just as obviously Jesus Christ is our ultimate perfect pattern and example, Abraham is a pattern and example. He is the benchmark of faith. Romans 4.13, For the promise that he should be heir to the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. In verse number 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be of grace to the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He is the benchmark. All who believe have a close, close connection to Abraham, whether they be of the circumcision or not. Or Galatians chapter number 3. Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Chapter number 3 and verse number 6. Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Which again, folks, I mean, is precious to us because it's in the Bible and we accept it as truth. But it really, in some ways, is a little bit disconnected from us. That was, that was something that a Jew had to consciously come to grips with. He couldn't just gloss over that. Because he believed that he was a descendant of Abraham by circumcision. That's what he had been taught all of his life. And now Paul is making the argument, Romans 4, Galatians 3, that that's not it at all. Right? That anybody who has the faith of Abraham is the descendant of Abraham. Verse number 8 in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, that's us, Preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations of the be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in the thing, all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith, and the law is not of faith. But the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, 
being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. If I may interpret, verse 14, so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So Abraham becomes the true benchmark of faith. And the same thing is said of him in Hebrews 11, 8, and 17. So that always, folks, right? If we, if we want to just have a pure, undiluted, untarnished explanation of what it means to have faith, look at the life of Abraham. Who just simply, not only intellectually, took what God said at face value, but lived as if the promise was true. He left her the Chaldees. I'm going to give you this land. Okay, then we're going to the land. Now, there are plenty of failings across along the way, and we will come to them quickly enough. But he is the benchmark of faith. And finally then, right, there's a sense I would argue to you folks that Abraham is representative of all believers. Not just in the way that we respond to God, but in our very relationship to God. We have been called by God into something that is unknown. Right? We have a promise. We have God's promise of what we're entering into, but that is all we have. So that what, what the expectation is, folks, is that we will live for what we have been promised but don't see, which will have a bearing upon what we see but we really don't have. And that's the way the Lord always talks to us about this world, that we live in it but we don't really have it because we're just, we're just moving through it. And God has made to us promises that are amazing in content, but we will never have in this life. We will never have them in this life. And that's why we get to the end of Hebrews and we read about all those people who have the same common denominator. They didn't get the promise. They didn't get the promise. But all true believers then are oriented in that same way and they respond to that call. And this is something, folks, that is, that is true of believing people that is just not true of unbelieving people. And, and we know that at the world large, but I, I want to make this distinction, right? This is something that is true of believing people that is not true of people who profess belief but don't have it. Two things mark us out as different. Number one, we hear a voice that others do not hear. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And I don't mean that audibly I, because if, if you wanted to come and sit down and talk to me and tell me how God had spoken to you, I would hope you want to talk to me about the Bible. But if you want to tell me about voices, this is probably not going to be a good conversation. But we hear the word of the Lord. And by the way, Paul is the same kind of benchmark. 
Right? When you read the account in Acts 9, folks, everybody heard something. But to everybody but Paul, it was just noise. Paul heard the Lord, everybody else heard noise. We hear a voice that others don't hear. Moses endured Hebrews 11 as seeing him who is invisible. We see a face that others don't see. That's just part of what it is to be a Christian. This is, this is the true explanation for why we live out our faith. Why there are things that are necessary demonstrations of the life of faith. Because we see something that others aren't seeing and we hear someone, not a bunch of voices, one voice that others aren't hearing. That is our call. That is our response. That is what governs us. So that Abraham is a benchmark of faith and Abraham is a representative of all believers. Our, our individual experiences aren't all the same. God didn't necessarily relocate you from one country to another to prove your faith, but God spoke to you and made you a promise and you believed it. And the life of faith that you live is your demonstration of that belief. That's the way that it works for us. Okay, I'm going to stop there. And... Uh, <clears throat>